0: We've spent 12 weeks now. Tonight is our 12th week together looking at this seemingly esoteric topic in the Bible that is so ubiquitous in the Bible, it's in almost every other book of the Bible discussed, sometimes in great detail. And we'd better step back and say, wow, here is something that while I may not see it, I may not have any objective experience with it, if this is what God says is true. And I have no choice but to affirm it is true, and to study it as though it is true. And as I talk about truth, I'm talking not about postmodern truth. I'm talking about true truth, right? Truth that is in keeping with reality, that there is a spirit without a body named Michael, that there's a spirit without a body named Gabriel, that there's a spirit without a body who is now our adversary, that there's a host of, of fallen, rebellious spiritual beings that are dead set against us and all that we're about. And for us to take the word at face value and make sure that we submit our minds to it, that we think about reality in light of it. I mean, that was the goal of the last 12 weeks. I'm glad that you stuck in here with us. So before we get into installment number 12, let us pray. Pray with me, please. God, we bow our heads and whether or not we are confronted face to face with our own mortality, life and death, the issue that our lives are not... Simply what we see, not the tangible makeup of the naturalist theory that all that there is is what we can taste and touch and examine and attest to, but that every person in this room is inhabited by a spirit, that we have a body, that we are spiritual beings that one day will depart from this body, and that we will be subject to one of two places, and that we will be greeted or escorted or uh, guided by angelic beings that are not like us, that never inhabited human bodies or were born on the earth, whether or not we think that way or have had reason to ponder the reality of those things, as we turn to your word, let us not raise our eyebrow with the kind of skepticism that the foolish in our world constantly do, and they just sit there and 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 pontificate, as Jude and Second Peter say, they revile against things they do not understand, And all of us one day, certainly on our deathbed, if we have the uh, opportunity to ponder our encroaching death, we'll think much differently, I'm sure, about the spiritual reality of our own lives, not to mention the spirit world itself. And being insulated in a very materialistic culture in South Orange County, California, uh, help us, God, to look past these kinds of things and recognize that what we see is temporal and what we don't see is eternal. And as we finish up this last installment of our study, I pray you'd enrich our thinking, that we might think more accurately about reality, that you might give us a sense of of awareness of what is real and what is true, and that we might prepare ourselves not just for our future transition to the next world, but that we would be ready to face everyday life and know that there are lines that can be drawn between the temptations that we face and the thoughts that pop into our head and the spiritual battle that wages around us. So tune us into this, get us aware of this without being obsessed with it, as we've said continually throughout this series, and let this last night be the best we've had in the last 12 sessions together in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we need to talk a little bit, oddly enough, about exorcisms, Had I asked you before you came in, is that a biblical word, I wonder what you might say. Let's talk about the word It is found in the Bible. I have there for you, if you're not familiar with interlinears, interlinears, this is spaced Greek text underneath a very literal wooden translation of that text, and as you can see in a simple verse like this, uh, as we'll get to in a minute, I'll give you the reference in a second, uh, it's not at all in the kind of uh, fluid order that we're used to in English, very different, there's a whole strategy to that in the Greek language. But this is worth printing out to show you some things uh, that I think will be important as we examine the word. I'm going to put a hyphen here in this word, not that it's there in Greek or should be in English, but when we talk about exorcist, exorcism, uh, the exorcists or schisms, put those plural if you want, this is a transliterated word. I say this all the time, but you do know the difference between translation and transliteration. Transliteration takes a word from a Greek language, for instance, or Hebrew in our case, Old Testament, New Testament, or Latin sometimes, and we just turn those letters into English letters. And as we do that, we create a word that has no real meaning in our language until someone explains the the meaning of the the word in another language. Uh, And this is a compound word. If you look for this compound word in your Bible, you'll find it one time... As you see it translated in the ESV, and I should say most translations, the only translation that goes out on a limb uh, would be um, that wacky message translation, the message, which isn't, isn't worth having really. Um, but uh, he uses it frequently because he's not concerned about good translation technique, obviously. Uh, but we have one passage. And the passage that is there on your text, just to give you the, the book and the chapter, is Acts 19. Acts 19, verse number 13. And I've boxed a couple things a phrase and a word. And I want you to see the connection here, whether or not you can transliterate the, the Greek language or not. We'll do that for you. But uh, the word here in the text, very woodenly put, is the coming around Judean exorcists. And you can see that that, you know, set of squiggly letters above the word exorcists, uh, you know, if you were to get familiar with the Greek language, it, that's simply a transliterated word, at least the core of it and the prefix. Uh, and, and so if you were to tear it apart and just transliterate it as literally as you can in this context, even in the form in which this noun is found, it's a noun here, uh, you have ex, which is a, uh, a Greek preposition, which means out or out of, the prepositions are so important, and whenever you do study Greek, some of you have, but if you're going to, the prepositions need to be mastered. Do not leave that topic or chapter without making sure you've got that whole topic nutted. Uh, X means out of. It's so critical to translation and vocabulary and all the rest. Uh, or kistes is, is the word oath. Now, this is strange. Out oath. As a noun, the out oathers in the plural noun. The the trans the traveling around or as it's put there in the ESV I put the English underneath there the translation of the ESV the itinerant Jewish exorcists okay uh, these are one who are trying to uh, out something context is clear demons in this case by an oath by an oath a sworn declaration that invokes deity. Or any higher power, in our case in the Bible, an oath is in, 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 imploring uh, or bringing to testify God, bringing God into a discussion which is an authoritative sworn declaration to get something out. That's what the word means. Uh, and, and these guys are known for that. Now, transliterate it here for yourself. You've got these phrases there. The coming-around Judean exorcists, the, the itinerant Judean uh, or Jewish uh, exorcists. Uh, and underneath there, you've got this word. You see this, put under oath. That right there, uh, let's transliterate that, orkidzo. Orkidzo, and if you are real technical and you're a Greek graduate, you can know it's a rough breathing mark and it should be translated horkidzo, but we're just going to translate it orchidzo for now to show the connection because breathing marks change and don't worry about what I'm saying right now. Look, though, at the word above it, the one with the arrow on it. Okay? Now take off the X at the beginning and the ending. And what do you have? You have the same root here, right? Or kiss, and the Z turns into an S. Or kiss, or kidzo. Or kiss, or kidzo. Okay? That is the core word that is translated here in the ESV. I bolded it for you. I adjure you. Now let's read it in English. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcist, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And on goes the story, the seven sons of Sceva. They tried to, uh, you know, exorcise this demon, couldn't do it, overtook them, ripped their clothes up, beat them up, all of that. But that connection between orchidzo and orchis, or orchids, which is in the center of the other word, it's the same it's the same word. It's the same root. It is oath. Now, the strange thing about this is the way that it's used. Think about it with me. If, if th- this is a, na- a verb now, right? Orkidzo. Orkidzo is, uh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to like oath you, right? <laughs> this is weird. Uh, you can easily put it in the first person to take an oath right i can take an oath but that's not the use of this word here this word is i'm going to force an oath on you or i'm going to force you by oath it is something that is done to you and and in english we translate it to adjure now this is a weird word but it's a latin word you'll find this word twice okay there's four words in the greek new testament we're going to look at that have Orchidzo as the root right and two times it's just Orchidzo, and it's translated adjure both both times in, in English, in the ESV, okay. This is Latin. Ad is to, and jur, and juris. You know that from law is is oath. Jur, ad jur is is to oath you. Okay. That's a weird, even logical thought. I'm going to oath you. Uh, what do you What do you mean? I, I'm going to going to force some solemn declaration on you. And then you add the word x in front of it. Ek, and it is to 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 forcefully put you under oath to get something out of you okay got that in your mind as weird as all that is now uh, mark 7 can you read that up here i'm sorry mark 5 7 this is a demon talking right jesus is doing what you might say is an exorcism that word's not used in relation to christ casting out demons but you might say well that's what it is isn't it no not really Look at what happens here in this text where the word is used, and it's not Christ. It's the demon. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I, or kids owe you, by God, do not torment me. Now, X is not in the front of that because there's nothing out of in this. But there is a not a request. This is not a request. This is... Do not torment me, I adjure you. I I oath you. I solemnly declare by God, don't do this to me. Do you see how forceful a statement that is? And you can see that the concept even is clearly uh, the, the relation that God is invoked in this statement. The demon here, if you want to put x in front of this, is exorcising or kidzo, ex, or kidzo. He is making Christ do something. Now, do you think a demon can make Christ do anything? No, but that's what powers like demons are, you know, in the business of doing, and they're going to beg for their lives, and they're not begging. They're going to demand by God that he not do this. Okay, another one. There's, there's, we got two uses of orchidzo. One is ex-orchidzo, or in the noun form, and then or kidzo. now the third one's here. Here's the fourth one. There's only four in the Bible. Okay? Matthew twenty-six, sixty-three. This is Caiaphas. He's in Caiaphas's court. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said, now this has X in front of it, I or kidzo you. By the living God. Do you see there's always that sense? By God I do this. I exorchizo you, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why is X in front of this? Why is X not in front of the demon's demand? Because there's no out of sense in in his demand. Don't send me over there. Here, it's I need the information out of you. You need to tell me, are you the Son of of God? I exorchizo you to give me that information. You must, by God, I demand it. Do you see how forceful a statement this is? Exorcism. That's what exorcism means. Exorcism is this authoritative invoking of some other something to demand something to happen. And when X is used, to get something out of someone. In this case, a confession. Are you the the son of God or not? Now, do you think Caiaphas... Can make the living Son of God, the eternal Logos of eternity, can can he make Jesus say anything? Of course not, right? So, by way of summary, let's think this through. There are four uses of this word, or at least some cognate form of it, relatives, okay? Two of them in Acts uh, chapter 19. The first one, let's think about it, when the word is used, the Jewish seven sons of Sceva, were they successful? They were known as exorcists. Did they succeed? No. They failed miserably. Okay? They are, and the word is used as a noun there, adjuring, right, or kidzoing that the demons leave. So we we see their title and we see them in action and both of those fail. You should revoke your title because you're no good at this, right? Now, the demon is doing it. You don't think about demons exercising. He's exercising something, but there's no X. He's orsizing something, and that is demanding by God that you not send me to, to torment. And then Caiaphas, which, by the way, Jesus, at least temporarily, concedes and lets the, the, the spirits go into the swine. We looked at that story a few times in this series. So there is concession, but do you think Christ was bound? Of course not. So he's demanding something, and Christ is allowing in his grace Uh, Some kind of transferent to the swine, then I don't know if he, you know, I don't know what happens to the spirit after the swine drowned in the Sea of Galilee. That's all speculation, but who knows? Maybe then it was just a short little, you know, swim and then on to torment. I don't know. I don't know how that worked. But it wasn't something where Jesus was being demanded and and then, oh, you, you exercised me. I have to do this. And then the last one is Caiaphas. Which, by the way, if you read the next verse, it's verse 64, which we don't have on the screen, uh, does he give him the answer? Kind of. I guess so. He goes, Well, you say so. Uh, so, none of the words, none of the usage of the words exorcism in the Bible, or exorcist, or the act of or, or, or kidzoing, are really all that impressive. They're mostly failures. Keep going. Let's talk about this. Letter B Ritual exorcisms. Now, this is. The norm, the standard, ritual exorcisms. There is something very common in ancient Assyria, ancient Babylonia. Those in particular, we have plenty of manuscript evidence, lots of manuscript evidence, that they had all kinds of incantations, all kinds of spells and magical, you know, deferences, that they were asking, uh, you know, the spirits that be to exercise a spirit, that there would be some kind of, of rigmarole that they would go through to do it. They were relying on the, the spells and the magic and the incantations to do this. Now, this is going to get, uh, oh, I put that down, magical formulas and incantations, okay? Definitely a Babylonian-Assyrian pl- practice, and you can bore yourself with this, and i got all the books in my library. You can look it all up and read all the weird stuff that came out of Babylon and Assyria as it relates, uh, all the Mesopotamian cultures as it relates to this. Now, here's where it gets weird. Jewish practice was common as well. There is um, two kinds of extra biblical writings. Uh, two kinds of extra biblical writings, extra biblical outside of the Bible writings that are Jewish. Okay. Um, well, there's more than that, but let's just talk about these two. There is the Apocrypha. Okay, you're familiar with that. I say it's Jewish, but we don't have the manuscripts in Hebrew. They're all in Greek. That's one should be a clear clue that. This is not canonical. This is not, you know, the, the God's Word like the rest of it because we don't even have it in Hebrew. We have it in, in Greek, but most of it, most all of it. Those are the books that the Catholics jammed in there as authoritative at the Council of Trent. And I know you guys in class have learned all about this kind of stuff. But in response to what they wanted to do doctrinally to the, to, the, to the upstart, arrogant Protestants was defer to a couple of passages in the Apocrypha, which was always seen as ancillary material uh, that helped us fill in mostly the gaps between Malachi and Matthew. And that material in the intertestamental period, which we're going to talk about a little bit at New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve, uh, some of the most exciting was Maccabees and all the Maccabean revolt and, and Antiochus Epiphanes and all of that, the Apocrypha. Then there's something else. We talked about this in Bibliology, if you were there for that. There's also another set of writings called the Pseudopigrapha. Do you remember that? Not at me if you remember the Pseudopigrapha. Pseudopigrapha, pseudo means what? False. Pigrapha is writings, right? Uh, the Pseudopigrapha are, everyone has considered the Pseudopigrapha just wild, you know, outside biblical writings, fanciful and yet some historical. Both the Pseudopigrapha and the Apocrypha talk about, exorcists that rely on rituals, incantations, and spells to extract spirits, evil spirits from people. I'll add one more. Josephus. You know who Josephus is. The Jewish historian conscripted by the Romans to write a history of the... Jewish people, it was uh, something in the first century that some people thought he's a sellout, he doesn't want to be killed, he, you know, it, it was a sweet job for him anyway, I won't get into Josephus, but he writes even as he retells the story of the Old Testament and, and, and gives all of his historical comments, he writes about the exorcism and the skill of exorcism that came through the ranks even in Old Testament parallel history. He even intersects with Old Testament history when he talks about Solomon and all of his wisdom that he gained, even being able to, Solomon, be trained himself to learn the art of exorcism, which was a reliance on incantations or spells, whether that's true or not, whatever. But that's what he wrote. That, from that alone, that was clearly the oral tradition surrounding the written history of the Old Testament, included a lot of pseudo discussions about exorcism. That was happening in New Testament times. For instance, who were the itinerant in Acts 19.13? Who were the itinerant Judean, that's the southern part of Israel, uh, exorcists? I don't know. Was there a job for that? There was. And Old Testament history talked a lot about that. Extra-biblical history, at least. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you're into the pseudo-pigrapha, which you can find a lot of it on the Internet, and if you have Logos, some of you may already have it digitally, Uh, the one that's jam-packed full of this is called the Testament of Solomon. And most of you have access to an Apocrypha. Read uh, Tobit chapter 8, and you can read chapter 6 as well that deals with some exorcisms. Look at this verse again. We've looked at this before. And if I cast out demons, Jesus speaking now to his critics, by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons cast them out? Has that ever made you scratch your head? We didn't even deal with that when we read that earlier. Therefore, they will be your judges. What is he affirming right here? That there are, I don't know whether there are a tenor or not, but there are Judean, that's where they are, exorcists, right? What's strange about this text is he doesn't tell us by whom they cast them out. But apparently, they're casting them out, either successfully or not, like, Remember when we talked about the fortune tellers? What did we say? There are real ones. We saw one in Acts 16. There's some real ones around the world today. And then there's the scams. Uh, when you get into stuff like this, uh, it's a little bit easier to be found out as to be real or not. But apparently there were the scams and there were the genuine exorcists who were doing exorcisms. But there was something different about Christ. Luke 4. You're not far from Luke 4. Turn to this text. Luke chapter 4 changed everything about how the crowd saw Jesus doing his quote-unquote exorcisms and why they never called them exorcisms. Here's why. Here's why what Jesus did wasn't called that, though the same thing were happening. Demons were being cast out. But it was not by a calling on God to do it. It wasn't calling on some intermediary incantation or spell. This was different. Verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him, talking to the, the evil spirit. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, and they said to, no, to one another, What is this person? Is that what they say? they say? Word. What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Whatever the Jewish exorcist did, as compared to the Babylonian the Assyrian exorcists, which what we can learn at least from those parallel histories is there's a lot more incantations going on with the Assyrians and Babylonians and some with the Jewish people, but there was at least some reference to God in all of this. Jesus, no reference to God, right? He is doing it with his own word. That's why the word orchidzo doesn't work in reference to Christ. Do you see that? Why in all of the exorcisms, if you want to call them that, which we shouldn't call them that, because the Bible doesn't call them that, and I'm telling you why we don't call them that, he's not casting them out by oath, which is the imploring of some divinity or deity or some outside power. He is the power himself, which, by the way, I mean, for all the people trying to say that Jesus isn't God at our doorstep, it's everywhere. And here's another example. He is not deferring It's like when he forgives sin. Here's another one. It's more subtle. He is actually expelling demons from people without deference to the solemn oath and declaration and the enlisting of God. I adjure you by God do this. It was a direct word. And that's what blew their mind in in, in contrast to ritual exorcisms. Now, by the way, compare now what's going on when you see the depictions of exorcisms today. Is it what Christ did, or is it what the Assyrians, Babylonians, and and the failing Jewish itinerant exorcists did, right? There's always something involved, right? Think of the the exorcist. I'm assuming I've not seen, but I've seen enough of it on uh, parodies and clips. Uh, There's always, in all of those depictions, something involved. The holy water, the cross, right? The Bible. There are things that are involved. That is markedly, categorically different than what Christ did, And because orchidzo is not a part of it, we don't call them ex-orchidzo, we don't call them exorcisms, not when Christ does it at least, and not when the disciples or apostles do it either. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about Christ's specific delegation, not of, he doesn't delegate exorcisms because that would imply the involvement or deference to a divine authority in heaven to cast out demons. He's sending out his delegates. That's what the word apostle means. Delegates. Delegates of. They're not apostles of God. Have you noticed that? They're apostles of Christ. Christ is the authority, as arrogant as that would sound to a a very pious Jew. He was the authority, and he had delegates. And in passages like this, let's go to Mark chapter 3 and look at this. He is going to delegate authority as it relates to spirits, evil spirits. The word exorcism is not used because it's very different than the Jewish exorcists, the Babylonian exorcists, the Assyrian exorcists. Luke 4, no, 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 Mark 3, look at verse 13. And he, that is Christ, went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed, very technical, critical word here in this, appointed, he designated, twelve whom he named apostles, the delegates, the sent ones, which is, by the way, another transliterated word, apostolos, the apostles, not translated. If you were going to translate it, you'd say, he also named the sent ones or the delegates. right? So that they might be with him. Now you're going to be with him all the time. You're going to see everything he does. You're going to watch everything he does. You're going to to hear all of his sermons. And he might send them out to preach and, verse 15, Have authority to cast out demons. He is now going to impart to them authority to cast out demons. And he pointed the 12 and he starts listing them, and Peter's always listed first, and on the list goes. So Christ now does something different than the exorcists did. And now he brings his delegates to him and he says, I'm going to give you authority, and you can now do this. Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Well, we might expect that because he gave them authority to do a lot of things, right? I mean, uh, the signs of the apostles, signs and wonders, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, signs, wonders, and mighty works. We would expect there would be a special authority given to them. I mean, it would make sense. It would fit at least. But this blows the paradigm a little bit, a little bit. Uh, but there are there. Here is a specific delegation. Verse 17. The 72. Oh, by the way, we should do this because it's Compass Night. Do you have a footnote there next to 72? What does it say? Something in the margin of your study Bible or your reference Bible? Some manuscripts say what? 70. This is an interesting. Uh, if you're with us in Bibliology, whenever we have when we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament. Ancient manuscripts. And when you look at those ancient manuscripts, you line them up in terms of where they came from, and you line them up in terms of how old they are and how close they are to the original in terms of time and geography and all of that. When you look at the manuscript evidence on this, it is perfectly split. The oldest, the reliable ones, the ones we think are you know, the, the most solid by, based on how they were done and when they were done and where they were done uh, between 70 and 72. What does the ESV say? It says 72, does it not? Only the KJV and a couple of others will say 70. 70, we assume... Because if you remember anything about bibliology, the Family 1 and Family 13 of manuscripts, which are big in the Texas Receptus, if they have enough evidence there, they'll always go with that. And what they have is 70. 70 is probably not the number. I think the ESV is right, although every good scholar will say, yeah, we don't know. Uh, because, and here's my theory, because 70 was an important Old Testament number. There's no reason to take a 70 and turn it into 72. But there is a reason to take a 72 and turn it into a 70. Because, I mean, if you're a Jew and you're thinking about 70, there's a lot of 70s in the Old Testament, and they are somewhat important. 72, I don't think there's a single one. No, there is one in terms of oxen, I think. In the Old Testament, there's this reference to 72 oxen or something like that, or pairs of oxen. I don't remember. So my theory is 70. I I just thought I'd throw that in. 72, 70, there's a split... um, textual evidence for that and and when people talk about the you know when you're in those college classes and they say oh the the bible's been rewritten millions of times these are the kinds of discrepancies we find in ancient manuscripts stuff like this 7072 which doesn't change anything about the story at all and though this is a coin toss i'm going to go with 72 and most modern translations do so all of that to give you plenty of time to get there acts 10:17 The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Now, in this case, look, in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given authority to you. I've given you authority, rather, to tread on serpents, which, by the way, was the word always used in the scripture as it relates from from Genesis to Revelation, uh, not exclusively. Sometimes it's talking about snakes, but often to to the the enemy, the ultimate enemy. In this case, it's plural, uh, serpents. Scorpions, which shows up again in Revelation as it relates to evil spirits. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, which is a great statement. I mean, just getting things in perspective. That's the biggest deal of all. But the point is, there are now 72 people here in Christ's ministry that he sends out as, you know, small a apostles, delegates for a time that go out and they have this same authenticating mark to be able to cast out demons. And they do. It's not called exorcism. He even says it, though they say we've done it in your name. He says, I'm giving you that authority. Everyone wants to talk about exorcism. Well, what about those? Let me just say, if it, well, let's call it this. This, My standard expectation the standard expectation is not to assume unto myself something that was historically granted to a few people in the New Testament, which would be specifically the 72 of Luke chapter 10 and the 12, the apostles, but to be able to say that instead of assuming that somehow he's imparting this to people, whether it's in the back, you know, uh, mission fields of, of Indonesia or whether it's in, in 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 california uh, i 'm going to assume a standard position that I see as a regular uh, mentality in 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 the text and jude eight through ten we 've quoted it you don 't need to turn there unless you 're speedy in getting there here 's what it says, and you might remember talking of false teachers in like manner these people the false teachers they rely on their dreams, they defile their flesh they 're sinful they reject authority, and they blaspheme. Spirit beings, the glorious ones, the ones that are above them in rank, this, the the angels. But when the archangel, the ultimate angel, Michael, contended with the devil and was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to announce a blasphemous judgment which has the feel of orchidzo, the demanding, the I have authority over you, but he said the Lord rebuke you, Okay? There's a kind of deference there that we don't even see in the 72. We don't see that in the apostles. I mean, they do practice this in Jesus' name, but here is someone much more powerful than Peter or Thomas, right? And his response to any encounter spiritually, in terms of spiritual forces of evil, in this case Satan, the Lord rebuke you, a deference to God. But these people, they blaspheme. They blaspheme what they don't understand, and they will be destroyed like unreasoning animals, and on it goes. Your cousin, you think, is demonized, right? Don't call me to cast out a demon like an apostle, okay? I don't presume to have that authority, okay? I will do what Michael did, my namesake, and that is, I will pray. I will pray for you. I'll do more than that because there's one more thing I think that's worthy of noting. But I want you to see that there is a deference to God that I think should be the position of everybody in our day. Because even the people, the the Pentecostals, Charismatics, the exorcist groups, all of that, they're demanding, and I've made jokes about this, but they're demanding this orchidzo kind of solemn, "I, I oath you. And they're demanding things and expecting spirit beings to respond as though they're apostles in the first century and they can't even demand that their kids be home by curfew and make it happen, right? That All I'm saying is it's interesting how it doesn't work with, I don't know, even five-year-olds to finish their peas, but somehow you're doing it to beings much stronger, much more intimidating, much more powerful than, you know, your eight-year-old who you've demanded to clean his room and he won't do it. But there is a continual casting out. Think this one through based on where we were last week. First John five nineteen. What I'm going to do when you call me and tell me your cousin is demon-possessed, right? Or hopefully you've learned better vocabulary and your pastor can model that for you now and not say that what I just said. Your cousin is demonized. I think my cousin is overtaken by demons and that you need to help me. I will help you. But I won't come in like an apostle and demand uh, a demon to do anything. I don't presume to have that delegated authority from Christ But I'm going to, like Michael, with an attitude of deference, defer and pray that God would work, and I know how this happens. Look at 1 John 5, 19. You've turned there. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay? If you want another verse to jot down, you know this one. How does that happen? We learn it in, in Ephesians 2. How do I move from being under the power of the evil one and being... Of God, or as it says in Ephesians two that though I was now here 's how it 's put, I was walking in the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, I was doing all of this in that spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience. How does that all get reversed? Well, in Ephesians two, it is submission to the gospel. it is a repentance and faith in Christ, the solution. For a most dramatic, whatever your cousin is experiencing, and the guy I, I meet, uh, you know, at, at the restaurant and share the gospel with, is the same. The answer is the same. The remedy is the same. Soon as you want me to call in, don't you have some magic water, or don't you have some? Isn't there a kind of cross in the back custodial room you can grab at the church? As soon as you want to point to something... Well, now we're in the realm of itinerant Jewish exorcist, or a Babylonian exorcist or a Syrian exorcist. We don't do that. Nothing. There's, Christ didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. The 72 didn't do it. They did it with a word. Christ did it with a word. His delegates did it with a word. Right? Anytime you think there should be something else involved... right? I, and I don't have the authority, so I can't do it. But what I can do is pray, defer to God... Jude 8 and 9, and I can give the gospel because the gospel is the answer, right, for anybody who is in any way, as the text says in 1 John 5, under the power of the evil one. How do you get of God? You got to repent. You got to trust in Christ. You got to forsake your sin. You got to cling the, to, the, to the God who saved us. In a word, evangelism. And in that sense, there's a continual casting out Someone asked me when I did the count of all of the GT1s versus the GT2s in the Bible, did you count exorcism? And that made me scratch my head. It was a question after a service here, and, and I couldn't remember. And the more I thought about it, I thought, no, I don't think I did, because an exorcism is nothing... You know, I'm using that word wrongly again, too. A casting out of a demon, whether it was the apostles, the 72, or Christ, is something that on some level, though not as dramatic, is taking place right? All the time. It's taking place when somebody repents and puts their trust in Christ. Or even as a Christian, if there's some kind of dominance of a sin in their life and some quote-unquote enslavement to some sin, when there's repentance and confession, there's freedom. And that's like saying, you know, if 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 Pete walks from here to there, well, that's a miracle. It's not. It's not a miracle any more than a spirit having some some hold here, and then not having a hold there because of the work of, of, of salvation in the gospel. Is it a miracle? It's a miracle. It's a God thing. Does it break natural law? No. Any more than a spirit moving from here to there or going to China right now is, is, is a miraculous thing. It may be supernatural in that it's not something we can see, taste, or touch, but it is not the breaking of natural law for what that's worth. Number two, God's overthrow of demons did that answer your questions about exorcisms, I hope? I said I was going to give a word about exorcisms, and that was about 15,000 words on exorcism. And if I still get somebody, well, so do you have an exorcist ministry at the church? No. That was the, whole, that was the, the short answer is no. The long answer, play the, play the CD back. All right. God's overthrow of demons. Here's the promise. And I'll just move through four phases. The end of the church age. And this doesn't sound like an overthrow, but before the overthrow comes a worsening of activity. Let's put it this way. It gets worse before it gets better. If you do any study in biblical prophecy, you know it gets worse before it gets better. There's an increasing apostasy in the church. 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3 talk about the increase at the end of the church age between the time that Christ leaves us and the church begins at Pentecost to the time he returns. At the end, it gets worse. In the words of 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says, verse 1, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This is a pastoral letter. Concern is in the church. Uh, Jude might be coming to mind at this point. Well, I should contrast this to be faithful to the text. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, talks about people adding things. To the biblical demand like forbidding marriage and you can't eat these certain foods that he calls demonic and the cult groups have been doing that the explosion of the cults in the name of christ if you study history we've had a lot of fights over orthodoxy but the explosion of the cults has been huge in in the last 100 years so that's increasing and then there's the other side of this that I think we're fighting today. I'm fighting on the stinking uh, aggressive sanctification blog. And that would be Jude when it says, when it talks about the demonic activity that Jude is being warned against, is that people turn the grace of God into a license to sin. Hey, if it's all about grace, then chill out. If that's our perspective, and now we begin to excuse sin because we think grace doesn't teach us to deny those things then we've got things that are going on like they were in Corinth, only in an exponential capacity and, and at, to, an, to a great extent in, in the end of the church age. So I know this, and we could, we could survey all that the Bible says, but that's enough for you to know. Demonic activity will increase before the return of Christ. And it may not be with spinning heads and projectile vomit uh, in, in exorcist-style demonic activity, but it will be. Which is his best work, I think, in the church. You should sit around with the pastors one one week. We I, we sit there and 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 often our our day that we spend most of the day together is on Wednesday, and we sit there and look at what's going on in the church. And I don't mean ours, although in ours too we we struggle with that. But at large, we look at the the magazines, the periodicals, the blogs, the the, the conferences, the best selling books, and we. All you have to do is, and because we've all been to school, we've all tried to study this formally and write papers and all the stuff we've done, we've seen through church history a real solid contingent, I mean, almost in every season of the church. And now it's like mainstream Christianity, people that claim to be Bible-believing Christians are so denying the very book that they say they promote. In, 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 it's, it's almost like all you need now is a sliver of this to be hailed a great Christian Christian leader in today's church. It's getting worse, right? It is getting worse. So the overthrow of demons is, is preluded by an increasing, seeming increasing success of demonic activity. Then, then comes, at least in my eschatology, the tribulation. The tribulation. Oh, by the way, I guess I should say this, <laughs> now that you've turned the page over. I don't mean to make the church age sound so terrible because there will be success And I I jotted down Luke 8 and Matthew 8, Luke 8, 28 through 31, and Matthew 8, 28 through 29, 28 and 29, Luke 8, 28 through 31, Luke 8, 28 through 31, and Matthew 8, 28 and 29, Matthew 8, 28 and 29. Both of those, and I know they're early snapshots of Christ's ministry, but they show that there are certain victories over demons that seem to be complete. It's weird. We read one of them don't send me off to be tormented before the time. What are you talking about? Apparently there is, in a place called the abyss, there is a holding tank for some demons who get so clobbered, in that case by Christ in His ministry, that they're done. They get benched and they're done until the end. So there are these victories. And I don't know how that works in the modern world. But while we see increasing demonic activity, we also see punctuated success by Christians doing some good things for Christ and the kingdom. The tribulation. Second Thess 2. Have you turned there while I was gabbing about that other stuff? First, second Thess 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. We read this last week. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming, and this, by the way, is not the coming to gather his church, but I believe the coming at the end of the 70th week of Daniel to, to end this thing. After he turns to Israel during that seven years to, to win them to Christ himself. The coming of the lawless one, verse 9, is by the activity of Satan with, now, this becomes completely unleashed, with all power and false signs and wonders. You can put in the margin the book of Revelation, right? chapter 6 through 18. Okay, that, there's, there's that. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned. They may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We could put the whole book of Revelation or at least chapter 7, which we're about to read. What do we read today? 6? Chapter 6? Chapter 7. We're about to enter the bad stuff. Chapter 7 through 18. Uh, there is the snapshot of unleashed, what I believe, based on the book of First and Second Thessalonians, unbridled because the Spirit and the church have been removed. Though he's saving Israel, primarily, there is an onslaught of success of, of Satan. So it gets worse before it gets better. It's bad during the end of the church age. It's really bad during the time of Jacob's trouble, as the Old Testament calls it, or the seven-year tribulation. And then it gets good, at least for a time. Turn to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20, two chapters from the end. We'll get two points out of this passage, the millennial kingdom. Millennium for you newbies, that means a thousand years. And because he repeats it so many times, I'm kind of getting the point that this is a thousand years. And he says it over and over and over in the first couple paragraphs of Rev 20. But here's the good part about the the millennial kingdom, which fits with everything we just read in Ezekiel not too long ago. Then I saw, verse 1, an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. This is a multimedia presentation that John is seeing. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, there it is again, who is the devil, the diabolos, the slanderer, and Satan, the adversary, and bound him for a thousand years, And he threw him into the pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, think about that. When you read through Ezekiel, you read through Jeremiah, you read through Isaiah and you read these sections, say in Isaiah, when you you still have death. But you have a man who's 100 years old dying and they grieve for him like he's an infant. Or you see the Ezekiel picture of the coming restored uh, uh, temple and there's all this great stuff. And it's so great, but it's still so earthly. This is the picture, at least in my eschatology, of the framework of where that all fits. Here is this time when the nations are not deceived, when there is peace and prosperity, and yet the human beings who have populated the millennial kingdom, who were saved by Christ out of the tribulational period, those folks, right, in, as blessed by God, still in earthly bodies subject to death, we, if we are Christians now, we are in our new bodies. We've been changed in a twinkling of an eye when we see Christ, when he takes us. Now, we are there in some different capacity than them, though. Jesus and Peter and Paul, they all, uh, Peter and James, all sat down and had fish together. It wasn't that weird that he was in a resurrected body and Peter wasn't. So it won't be for us. It'll be a good time in that there will be no Satan. And we can assume safely in this text because there's no deception of the nations, no demons. They are all now bound. So it gets worse. Then it gets really bad. And then it gets good until the last sentence of verse 3. After that, he must be released for a little while. Bummer. Uh, I mean, why would that be? Because if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, there are things going on in this period that seem so idealized but not yet perfect. They seem like the new Jerusalem, but they're not the new, new Jerusalem. They're not the newest Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem. It's a Jerusalem that's restored with God's blessing and peace, and all of the swords are pounded into plowshares, and everything looks good. There's still death, and there's still birth. So you got a lot of people in the thousand. How many people have been born in the last thousand years? Now I know we're dying off quick, but especially if people are living in some pre-diluvian, you know, anti-diluvian you know, ages. we got people living a long, long time, having lots of kids. We've got a lot of people now that didn't go through the tribulation, that did not populate the millennium from the beginning. They weren't there. They were populated after this. So you got a whole new generation of people. When you talk about sin and temptation, they go, what sin? What temptation? What are you talking about? So he's released. Drop down to verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. This is the end of the millennial kingdom, the beloved city. And fire, but fire, came down from heaven and consumed them. So now we have another kind of mini Armageddon going on. And the devil, verse 10, who had deceived them at the end of this millennial kingdom, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They got thrown in a, a thousand years earlier. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever, Rob Bell. Just throwing that in. Number four, this is the good news. God's overthrow of demons and, and, and demonic spirits at the top of that chain of command is is Satan himself. You've got a permanent now, a permanent imprisonment and casting out of all demonic spirits. As Jesus said when he was talking about humans going to this place, this is in Matthew 25, He's going to say to those are left apart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. This whole place was made for them. It's unfortunate that people are going there too. But they're done, they're cast out, they're there. The saints now come out of the millennial kingdom and they are put into resurrection bodies like us, the bride of Christ, the church. And now we get a new place called the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband, and we have now a new place that's called the eternal state, and we have no reference to another demon or another leader called Satan or the devil ever. It's over. We're all now in a perfected state in resurrected bodies for the first time. Everyone who follows Christ is now together in new bodies, impervious to sin, no temptation, no tempter, no serpent, done. That's the promise. How'd that happen? The basis. Letter B. The Bible's super clear on this, uniformed, all coming down to one afternoon when this was all reversed. Turn to Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two. Start in verse eleven. Colossians two, we'll read through verse fifteen. Colossians two, eleven through fifteen. In him, Christ, you also, you Colossians and other Christians by extension, were circumcised. Really? with a circumcision made without hands. This is symbolism, Old Testament picture of circumcision. This is not real circumcision. This is a picture by putting off the body of the flesh. The picture of circumcision in the Old Testament, that symbolic putting off of a token piece of flesh, is the picture of the real problem we have as regenerate people. And that is we've got a new heart and a new spirit. We live in a body that wages war against our new spirit and the Holy Spirit. And we're struggling and being tempted and we fall and we punctuate our Christian life with failure and sin. That's going to be done. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Here again is another picture. The new covenant picture of, of baptism. In which you were also raised with him, the real one, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. All symbolic here. God made alive together with Him, having having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. To use the words of Romans, that was such a good section of Romans that we studied, that the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, quoting now the first part of Romans 8, The law of sin and death is that if you sin, you deserve God's death, God's punishment. He's supposed to kill you and have you pay judicially for all the sins that you've committed. This now reverses all of that. It sets it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's how it was paid for. And in that, look at this, verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, in Him. Put this down. Christ's death defeated them, I could have said, but I want to make it clear, their agenda. Demonic agenda is for you to do one of two things. Either miss the point of how you get fixed with God, and that is keep you from salvation, keep you from repentance and faith, or to have you become a a blight, a a cause for Gentile blaspheming, as, as Christ said, by getting us to be increasingly sinful or at least to mar our testimony with sin. So they want us to either not get saved or once we are, to make sure we sin. All of that and all that comes with it, the condemnation that comes with it, reversed by the death of Christ. Interesting text. 1 Peter chapter 3. If the cross solved the problem, and it's coming quick this year, right? Good Friday and Easter. That is the, is the apex of all of biblical history. When sin not through a lamb on an altar or a bull or a goat in a temple, but on a cross, human sin was paid for. When that was accomplished, and Jesus said to telestai, in Greek, it is finished, that was the end of the game. That, it was over. Everything else, like I've illustrated, others have illustrated before, is like hitting the ball over the fence, and now you're just kind of marching around and touching the bases. It's over. They've lost. The, 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 The agenda of theirs, though it may be for now something that can frustrate us, if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, their overthrow is done. So he went in 1 Peter 3 and proclaimed victory over demons. Read this text with me. And if you were raised on any version of the Apostles' Creed or the Book of Common Prayer or you're in any high church, you remember the creed, He, Christ, ascended into hell and the third day rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. If you recited that as a kid or as part of your catechism or your confession or your creed, it's, it's wrong. Dun, dun, dun. And there's many, and plenty of people there writing books on this, but it's not, it's not so. And most good thinkers throughout church history have known that the Apostles' Creed is, is wrong on this point. 1 Peter 3, 18-20. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for... That's a big word in this text. For the unrighteous, substitutionary atonement. He took our place. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made, being made alive in the Spirit. Now, between the death of His flesh, the resurrection of His flesh, while He's alive in the Spirit, He does something. Verse 19, He went and He carusoed. He proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. Right? We've talked about the abyss. We've talked about some that are confined now and in the first century, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few people, that is eight persons, were safely brought through the water. This raises questions. We don't have time. It's three till eight, and I anticipated that, so I have a handout for you. But you want to deal with this passage. It's a one-pager. It's easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. It's no problem. You will get it. Again, this is just like the last one, a one-page paper from my old demonology professor on the identity of the spirits in prison. So deal with that in your own time. It's simple, straightforward, but it should be what any good commentary would give you, but it's written for you from beginning to end just to put it in one place. And I put the ESV text at the top of what we just read. All right, the results for us. Great news, really good news. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, We are freed from sin's condemnation. I'll just read the text for you. You write it, I'll read it. Hebrews 2.14, "...since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death." That is the devil. Get us to sin, make rack up an account so that we're going to be punished, "...and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." We no longer have to fear death because death then, here was the, here was the old equation, point on a man wants to die and then the judgment... And the judgment for people who don't have forgiveness of sins is nothing but condemnation. We're freed from that. That's what the cross did. I mean, this is Sunday School 101. He also freed us, and this is just as important, at least for our everyday life, from sin's enslavement, contra a lot of people teaching wrongly about sanctification. There is, in Christ, though not sinless perfection, certainly the power that God grants through the cross and through the resurrection, Through the indwelling spirit, there is, according to the Bible, a freedom from sins enslavement. I'll just read it for you. We read it earlier in the series. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's his domain. That's his realm. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared, now here's the context. It's about sinning, committing acts of sin, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Do we sin? We sin. We do, but we don't make a practice of it. Because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it's evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness, if that's not the pattern, if that's not the characterization of his life, then not a Christian. He's Not of God. That simplistic statement, and it's all over the Bible in one form or another, is what the cross was enabling us to do. It's what Christ has accomplished for us. All right. Our daily counterattack. Just flop your Bible open to this. We won't turn from this text. This is the last text of our series. Got to get here eventually, which is this classic text for our daily counterattack, Ephesians chapter six. Let's just walk through it. Verses 10 through 20. Read the first four verses, four or five verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. By the way, you don't want to put on partial armor. I mean, I've read several things through history where you miss one piece, that's where you get killed. Put it all on but you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is about our counterattack, our defense, which you'll find is a lot more active than it is passive. That's why I call it a counterattack against what the devil wants to do in our lives. If we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, and it's not Satan, you probably haven't caught his attention, but it's against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They're interested in, in taking us down. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And that's not just one day. That happens, you know, from time to time. I've had one this week. You've had one last week. We have them. It's when the onslaught is heavy, when the fighting is fierce, and having done all to stand firm. Therefore, verse 14, stand firm. And the first piece is to fasten on the belt of truth. Now think about this. We're going to talk about the Bible later, the Word of, of God. Here he's talking about the belt of truth, the thing that encompasses me. And the old translations are right. This is more like a girdle. This thing that encompasses me is the truth. This is about thinking biblically. This is about, here's how I put it, having that truth in our mind that allows us to perceive and discern error when we see it. This, by the way, is lacking in today's modern Christianity more than almost every other thing in this list. People want to say, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, high five, everybody's cool. We're not. We need to discern, test the spirits to see if they're of God. Evaluate everything, cling to what's good, avoid what's evil. And when it comes to people coming into the church, holding Bibles and telling us, well, you know what, I love God too. And I, can't, I want to say this like 20 times right now, till you think I'm crazy. I don't think we get this point. I think we think if someone, just the basic common denominator, if you love God and you read from the same book, I think we're all cool. We could go through so many passages that tell us you need to watch out for the false teachers. Who are they? The people that creep in secretly among you. That's who they are. They're here in our church. You don't understand that. I don't think to the level that the Bible presents it as a ever-present danger in the church. Therefore, you and I have to think biblically and discern error. And I'm talking about the error that the Bible points out. We can fight about a lot of things. I'm not talking about you know, music styles. I'm not talking about church architecture. I'm not talking about budgeting. I'm talking about truth, teaching us to think biblically and discern error. You want a daily counterattack. Don't let your mind think wrongly about anything insofar as it depends on your ability and God's help to get you to think biblically. Secondly, second half of verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I got to read verse 15 so I know what verse 14 isn't saying. And shoes for your feet, having the readiness, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Romans is all about this peace that we have with God. Romans chapter 5, that has to do with my standing before God. It's my feet they had, much like uh, uh, baseball spikes, the Roman soldiers, they had nails through the bottoms of their sandals to hold their feet in place like like golf shoes, only now we don't, can't even use metal spikes. So, uh, but they were like metal spiked golf shoes to give you a firm footing. That has to do with the gospel of peace, the good news of peace with God. Therefore, verse 14, I don't think is a redundant repeating of that, The breastplate of righteousness is, I'm going out and facing the world. What's the whole context? Fighting the schemes, the temptation, the onslaught of the enemy. By what? My defense is a really good offense. That's the best defense. And that is, letter B, that I'm doing right. I seek to do right. I'm zealous to do right. I'm all about letting my light shine before men so that they can see my good works. I want to do good today. I want to do what is righteous. This is not about justification, I don't believe, though many commentaries would want you to think that. I think it's about sanctification. This is about the thing that guards me is going out in this world with an intention and a zeal and a purpose to do good. Is that your intention? If not, you're vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Think biblically, discern error. Get out there and do right. The best defense, good offense when it comes to life. He wants to see you tempted and fall. You need to purposely occupy your mind and your agenda with doing something good in your workplace, in your relationships, in your church. I want to go and do good. I want to do righteous things. Now, the shoes are the readiness. They make me stand firm, which is all the verbiage of Romans in the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace gives me that firmness. I put it this way. I'm confident in Christ. I'm confident in Christ. If you've read my blog, you know I'm sitting there frustrated with Tulian's book that's all about this nonsense that, that, that puts sanctification, justification, blurs them together. Why was it such a big deal? It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because it calls into question everything about what the church is to do and how we approach ministry. Okay? But what he does in that book, if you've read any of the blog, you, you hopefully caught this, is he keeps trying to get us to think about are you confident in Christ and then unfortunately slops that over into our thinking about sanctification. I'm all about being confident in Christ because of what Christ has done. That does not change the way we go after and attack aggressive sanctification. But here I want to say, there's clearly a place for this to revel in my justification. That is not the hard work of sanctification. But to revel in my justification is to say, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. I stand clothed in Christ. I know that when it comes to, am I afraid God's going to kick me out of the family? I'm not afraid of that. Why? Because I can't fail bad? I can fail bad. But I know that because of what Christ has done, no matter what the slanderer wants to say, I've got an advocate who stands between me and God. And though I sin, if anyone does sin, you need to know you have that advocate. And before God, I'm okay. I'm a child of God. I'm not going to be cast out. He gave me His Spirit as a promise of my final glorification. I know that I'm saved, and I know I'm not going to lose my salvation. I am confident in Christ. Next one. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith trust him with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one whatever he throws at you apparently this is critical and that is that i trust god no matter what he does think job think job think job satan threw all this stuff at job and that was the test will he trust you will he honor you will he keep relying on you or will he turn on you i need to trust god in spite of how i feel I need to trust God in spite of my circumstances. I need to trust God when the doctor says it's bad and you're going to die or when the doctor uh, you know, says your kid is, is going to be forever messed up. by Whatever. I trust him. You want another passage to put in the margin? Hebrews 11. That's the whole point. What did I call that series uh, centuries ago? Ambitious faith. We've got to have ambitious faith. I am ready to stand and do whatever God wants us to do in this world without wavering no matter what happens. Think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Throw me in the furnace, and even if we die there, I'm not going to vary on this. I'm standing for God and for the truth. I'm going to trust Him. What, just that He'll save me out of every dire situation? No, even if He doesn't, I trust Him. And that's, by the way, what Job goes through, right? Even if I'm destroyed, I'll trust Him. He wavered a bit, but he was in a bad situation, worse than any of us. Letter E, helmet of salvation. I put it this way. Remember, often we win. And I get this. Why? What, what helmet of salvation? Is this redundant? I don't think it's redundant. Put this down on your notes if you would. First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. Parallel passage. And it says this. Since we belong to the day, we're, we're people, children of light. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and putting on the helmet of hope, helmet of the hope of salvation. He adds a phrase. Paul does. Same author. Different passage. Same illustration. The hope of salvation. And that is, at the end of this, I win. Not only am I secure... We are going to overcome in the sense that Revelation talks about it, in that Satan will be put down every temptation that I have now. I'm going to be secured and perfected in righteousness, and they lose, we win. So whatever battle I'm in, you know what? It may look bad, it may hurt, it may be hard, but we're going to win. The surety of the day of the Lord, it's coming, and we're going to be on the winning side. Letter D. What does the text say here? The sword of the Spirit, that's going to put down a lot of things that come at us as it relates to demonic activity, no matter what the form is, temptation, doubt, frustration, bad circumstances, disease, sickness, death, bottom line is the, the truth. You've got to get in your Bible more. And I can never think biblically and have the belt of truth around my brain or my body or my life unless I'm in the Word of God. What's your Bible study like? Hey, by the way, man, if you bailed out on the Bible reading in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, we're starting again real soon. <laughs> so get with us. Make the commitment. One of the best ways, I think, is get a new Bible. Get one to read out of that's crisp and new. and Get a partner. So log on to our website. We're going to have a brand new web- website we're going to launch. It's going to be even better on the interactive daily Bible reading part. It's going to be great. Get on there with us. And I told you, you don't have to be an author or you don't have to say anything great. Just I read it. It was great. See you tomorrow. Whatever. Just get in there with us. But study your Bible more. Now, you say, well, that's the end of it. Well, it's not the end of it because in verses 18 through 20, though he doesn't equate this to any part of the of the uh, armor, there's something that all soldiers needed to do. They needed to have good communication with the commander-in-chief, the leader, the, the battalion chief, the the, the, the the guy given directions, and that's where he goes for the next few verses here, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert. As you pray, think, man, persevere, make supplication. That's another word for this intercession for the saints. Yeah, and pray for me that my words might be given, that in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador and chains, that I can de- declare it boldly as that. Pray, 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 pray. I put it this way. you got to pray more, and you got to pray more specifically. I mean, he gets into details, and you need to pray. You want to look at the armor of God? Think biblically, discern error, keep doing right, be confident in Christ, trust God, In spite of any kind of circumstances or bad feelings, remember that we win. Study your Bibles. Pray more. One more thing before you click your pen away, okay? Uh, I've told you that much of the content, though the form of it or the outline, has come from my studying under Dr. Dickinson, who was my demonology, angelology prophet, Moody. The book is readily available that is it's i just love the form of the book it's just a basic biblical doctrinal outline it's called angels elect and evil Uh, I, i saved it to the end so that if you read it it'll be a recap on what you've studied here with me in the last 12 weeks this is my old professor from chicago he's still kicking around but retired used to be the chair of the Theology Department. Moody Press is the publisher. But the good news is, you Logos people, it's available. If you go to Logos.com, you can download that book. All the links for the passages are hyperlinked. Uh, and if you buy, read books that way, that's great. And if you're getting a Kindle for Christmas, it's on Kindle, and you can have it on your Kindle in one minute or less. Is it in our bookstore? Yes, it's in our bookstore. At least it was. Angels elect and evil. All right, let me pray for you. God, thanks for our time in the last 12 weeks. Thanks for Christmas time. We get to think about the incarnation of Christ, but so really was the necessary prelude to the death of Christ, which was the victory over all the things that demons wanted to do from the beginning. It is the reversal, the, the, the conquering, the defeat, the overthrow of all that they want to do. Their doom is sure, as Martin Luther said in that great old hymn. And uh, all we're doing is running out the clock with an aggressive look to our sanctification with a real ambition to trust you, with a hope that we can save more people as we get out there, as Paul said, to save as many as possible. That's what we want to do. So God, give us a real sense of your presence in our work here and guard us from the evil one in all of his schemes as we go about our work. When we encounter him in the evil day, if that's tomorrow or next month, give us the ability to stand firm against all that he throws at us, with these things, I know we whip through them really fast, but that Armor of God text is a classic. There's so much there for us to melt. It would be a great text to memorize or just go through a few times, read it 10, 12 times over to get it into our minds. But let us be prepared, God, as we think about these spirits that really would love to derail our Christian life. Thanks for our time. Thanks for this crew, their faithfulness. God, please reward them in countless ways, many ways they didn't even expect for studying your, uh, your truth, this doctrinal study with us for the last uh, few months. Thanks for them. Encourage them, God, uh, even as they leave tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.